Hi everyone, I'm Pamelia Chia and you are listening to the Singapore Noodles Podcast, your go-to destination to learn about Singaporean food culture. Today I have on the show Lace Jung, who is the author of the cookbooks Around the Dining Table and Three Dishes, One Soup. In the following conversation, we chat about her journey of rediscovering her roots as well as the journey of writing her two cookbooks. You know, I feel that what's so interesting about your content on Instagram is that it's very local and it's so different from what a typical Singaporean would cook, right? I mean, a typical Singaporean is always cooking Western stuff, but it's so interesting to see you really dig like really deep into your own roots and heritage. So could you tell me, how did that come about? Oh, actually, I, I probably was one of the typical Singaporeans who cook Western food. So when I first started cooking, um, maybe in my mid or early 20s, I would cook Italian food or French food. And then one day during Chinese New Year, I saw my grandmother and she's my maternal grandmother and she's basically the only one who can... Um, cook the Chinese New Year feast for everyone and I realized that as she was doing everything she was piling the table with all her you know the steamboat ingredients and her signature dishes like her no hyong and her kong ba pao and in that room with like three four generations um, I took a look around and she was basically like standing there and she said she's so happy that everyone's gathered around and I saw that amongst everyone there um, no one has learned how to cook um her food from her and since okay no one else really has an interest in cooking but I was the only one who enjoyed being in the kitchen so I started questioning myself like why am I learning the food of other cultures and not my own my own food so that was how I got the idea for the first book and I went to um, learn from her though she still cooks it better than I do Yeah, you know, I was actually looking at your your cookbook and like the kind of recipes that you have in the cookbook. And I feel that, you know, like just looking at the book, it seems like you've been cooking that kind of food for ages. You know what I mean? I get the sense that you're very seasoned as a cook and very comfortable with the kitchen. No, you know, so I feel a bit surprised when you tell me that, that, you know, that was the starting point of your journey. I was a baker before. Um, I enjoyed baking more and um, yeah, I started with baking and then I started to, I guess I think I was learning the ropes in the kitchen with from my grandma, going back to the basics. And I feel like the second book was maybe I, I started to get a bit more comfortable in the kitchen. So you know how when you first learn anything, they will say maybe you, you learn from someone and follow the instructions before you get to kind of innovate or, or give your own spin to it. I feel like the process of doing up the first book was me really learning. Although I, I think it's more, um, all the recipes are very home cooked. I didn't bother to learn all the knife skills or how to, you know, um, butcher a pig or something yeah but i mean i as i was flipping through it i i felt that there were so many interesting dishes that were not that common you know what i mean like one of them is the porridge kueh and that is something that has almost gone extinct in singapore so can you tell me a little bit more about that kueh Oh, yes. I think maybe you mistook my seasonality for my grandma's seasonality because it's her recipes. Yeah, so it's um, actually my grandma's mother-in-law's recipe. So we're, um, she married into a Hokkien family and she's Hokkien as well. So this is a traditional Hokkien dish that um, the coolies used to eat last time because um, it's like a super starch heavy. There's porridge and then there's tapioca starch. And it's a very nice chewy texture to it. It's it's really, really good. She just cooked it for my mom that day and you really can't find it anywhere and that that um recipe kind of 
um, is very close to my heart because she actually stopped cooking the recipe for very, very long. And I didn't even remember eating it until one day a few years ago, she brought it to our house. And when, when I ate it, I was like, wow, this is so good. How come you don't cook it? And she said she thought that I we wouldn't know how to eat it, the younger generation. So she only cooked it for herself. Mm. Is there a name for this dish? Do you know? Um, I, I'm very language. Um, <laughs> hang on, let me think. <laughs> oh, okay. Because, you know, there is um, this book called The Way of Kui. And he actually documented a recipe for this. And he called it Tin um, Pei I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right. <laughs> and then after that, when I... So my father-in-law told me about this dish as well because he grew up eating this dish. And I was like, oh, is it called, you know, this name? And he was like, no, like, I don't know. I don't know anything by that name. So I was a bit confused. Oh, what is it? Um, Your father-in-law. I can't remember, but, you know, he is very interesting because he told me that, you know, when he was growing up, his family didn't have much money. And so they would, you know, come up with all these ways to reuse porridge, right? And he was so nostalgic for it. He was just saying that, you know, now in Singapore, even if you have money, you can't buy this dish. It's true. true. It's true, right? And then he invited a few of his friends over um, and he cooked this dish for them. And it's funny because... He made his own version and then he taught me how to cook it. And then I made my own version. And you know, like growing up in Singapore, you have like, I mean, now we have access to so much produce. So I made like a more luxe version. So we served both versions and all of his friends preferred like the humble one because they said, you know, it's so nostalgic. <laughs> this is like the way that we, we enjoyed it growing up. So what really attracted you to that dish? I mean, it's a very carb heavy dish. There's not much, you know, I mean, typically in Singapore, what? really excites people is like wow big prawn and like you know a lot of seafood but this dish is so humble so why did you like it and why do you feel that it was important to include in your cookbook oh um firstly i i actually prefer carbs to protein <laughs> not sure if it's good but yeah um the texture of this as you know because your your father-in-law makes it's just so interesting and she cooks it with kb with mm. garlic, hay, and chili. Oh and my it's just God. so well spiced and with that that texture, you just can't stop eating it. And yeah. I it's just thought it was very interesting that this was made. Because I was like, what is this made of? And she said it's made of porridge. And I thought she was like <laughs> trolling me or something. So um it's just very interesting that they can transform porridge into this this dish. Mm. So learning from the older women of your family, do you feel that this sense of frugality also kind of like influenced the way that you cook now? Well, you do see how the older generation leave and I guess they, they grew up with um, a lot less so you feel more um, privileged mm. and she does, like every time she, she cooks something, she will reuse everything. Even the water used to wash rice. Mm. Yeah, she's just a very frugal mm. lady. Yeah. So, I mean, were there any obstacles to you learning about heritage food? Because you said that you were a baker, right? And everyone knows that baking is such a different kind of skill set in that you have to be so precise and so exacting. But heritage cooking is like completely opposite. So, can you tell me about your journey? Um, yeah, actually, I was... Since I was kind of new to the um, cooking cooking in the kitchen, what I did was I took my weighing skill and I, and I wanted to measure everything and document everything and ask my grandma why she did um, a lot of things that she did in the kitchen. So I took the steps all on my phone and I weighed everything. And I think she was a bit annoyed. She was like, no need to weigh. It's just aga, aga. 
<laughs> so now when I learn from her, I don't weigh anymore, but I, I do take videos and pictures. Oh, that's so good. Yeah. So, you know, you I, I read in, in your cookbook that you also credited your, I think her name is Auntie Alicia. Was she like oh. a helper who was working for your family? Yes, she's, she took care of me and then um, she actually was the one with my dad making pineapple tarts mm. all along. And she's the one who cooks the pineapple paste because um, she's older, 50-ish older generation of helpers. And it's very hard to find someone who's willing and able to hand grate the pineapple paste and cook everything down. Uh, she's got very good work ethic. She's she's with my uncle's family now for really long. And every Chinese New Year, she cooks She's got all our family recipes, basically. And she even still slices and fries shallots from scratch. Heavy yum, wow. everything. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I can completely relate with that because, you know, I had a helper who was with my family for the longest time. And, um, you know, previously I had this guest who was talking about how helpers are really, you know, they, they inherit all these recipes, right? And they know all these tips and tricks, um, even more than <laughs> the children, you know, because we did not really grow up following um, like our parents around the kitchen, learning from, from them. So what dishes were inspired by Auntie Alicia in your book also um funny enough um she she was the one who always cooked me hun kueh for me growing up and i really liked that dish so i went to learn it from her and then my dad who doesn't really cook much for us he kept um insisting that he knows how to cook and he was like you don't believe i know how to cook and turns out he actually taught her the recipes yeah i found out because um, he passed away last month and mm. i only found out from mm. auntie like when we, she came to the wake and she said oh you know actually he taught me all these recipes oh wow so your dad yeah. was like the main cook of the family? Uh, he actually, I feel like he's very gifted in the kitchen, more gifted than, than I am. Um, he, he does it very effortlessly, whereas I have to, you know, make a lot of mistakes. And then he, um, but he never really pursued that because he was, um, he wanted to work like in oil. He was like, the money is easier. So he went outside to work. But I feel like his passion has always been, especially baking or in the kitchen. Baking, wow. That's so interesting because I always feel that in Singapore, at least, the, the kitchen is always the domain of the females and they can get like very territorial about it. So do you know how your dad started cooking or started baking? Um, I think because they were from a really poor family last time in the kampong and then they had to kind of cook for themselves growing up. But my grandpa also used... They're Hainanese, so they used to run a chap chai peng store as well. And funny enough, my mom doesn't cook. She only cooks Maggie Mee. Oh my gosh! Really? <laughs> from from your, your mom who, you know, cooks so much. Yeah, oh my god, that's so interesting. So, when you were growing up, it was mainly your dad cooking meals and your and your auntie cooking meals for you? It's mostly, uh, mostly Auntie Alicia and my dad would bake and sometimes he would do the barbecues. And ah, okay. Then okay. he was busy working, yeah. So how did he pick up skills of like making pineapple tarts? I mean, that is like um, a very nonia thing, right? Oh my God, it's so funny. I, re- I really wish he was here today because he's so howling about it. <laughs> he said that <laughs> he went into the kitchen. Of course, my mom really loves pineapple tarts. And back then, 30 years ago, my dad was like, well, the pineapple tarts are so expensive. I'm going to make a better one at home. Mm. And he, according to him, he went into the kitchen and he tried this recipe for the first time that he came up with and it was this recipe. <laughs> oh my gosh, really? So, yeah, and uh, he, 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 yeah, I think, I think he really does have a gift. So 
after that, he's been making it every year for family and friends. And recently when I started to sell it and I started to bake um, during my uni days, we would talk about recipes and I, I would give him some ideas on how to maybe uh, make the texture a bit nicer and everything. And he would actually incorporate them and then we will like, experiment together. So what are your tips from like wet, your, your knowledge of Western baking? Uh, yes, because I read the books. So I would tell him, oh, no, this, this flour, that flour, then he'll go and experiment. Yeah. So what do you think makes your dad's pineapple tart so unique and so memorable? It's the, it's the pastry. It's a combination of the pastry and the, the texture of the pineapples. So normally when you get the pineapple paste outside, it's um, even if they say it's handmade, sometimes they mix it with the commercial ones to cut costs mm-hmm. or they would use machinery to... to um, crush the pineapples yeah. whereas this is completely hand grated so that's the fibrous texture and my auntie actually really stirs for hours you, you get blisters on your hands after from making it and actually I wasn't super hot on my dad selling it because I felt like it was really a lot of effort but he wanted to sell it so we would do small batches because it takes many days just to produce one or two batches of this um and his pastry is really buttery and it's, it's very tender. It's quite different from outside. It's, and I think it's his hands also because he rolls it and it looks like um, it came out of a machine. Wow. Yeah, but um, I, I think you would probably be able to do it, but I, I can't do it. Like, it's just misshapen and he always like, oh, so ugly. Oh my God. I, don't have to- I, I think I would struggle as well because, you know, with pastry, you really have to have that kind of patience, right? Especially with something like pineapple tarts. I feel that, you know, every time I make one batch, it's like just 20 or 30. But you guys, I'm sure one batch is like a few hundred, right? Yes. So have you inherited this recipe from your dad? Are you able to like recreate his pineapple tart? Um, <laughs> he gave me the recipe. I think I'm the only person he, he trusted enough to give the full recipe to. He made me document it down during Chinese New Year this year because this is something that he has a lot of pride um doing. I, I don't... Is it? I don't. I don't think he's doing it for for money or anything. He's just doing it because he enjoys it. So every time he makes it, he'll be full of pride. And then this Chinese New Year, because of um IG and the online stuff, there was a huge surge of demand for his things. So he was like, um, beaming and he's making his tarts. And he was like, "You come over here and you must take this down." And then he made me look at the the dough texture and when it's ready. And then. Um, he made me take videos and take the timing. So he's very exact. He'll be like, you know, you must beat this for a certain amount of time and he'll set the timer. And he told me to document mm-hmm. it all down. And I think back then I was busy with my own stuff also, but I, I just took it down, not a bit disinterested, like, wow, is he crazy? Why is he so kanjong? You know, I thought that we would still have time. So in retrospect, luckily he made me take everything down. Yeah. Yeah. So now this recipe to you is almost like an heirloom, right? Yeah, but as to whether or not I can make it exactly like him is still a question mark. <laughs> but I do have the rest. I saw the photos of your dad's pineapple tarts and it looks amazing. Like you get to see the long strands of, of the pineapple fiber. Yeah, I thought that was really like, you know, for me, I don't have the, that kind of patience, you know. And and also because it's quite a messy endeavor, right? Like when you grate it, then the juice goes everywhere. Well, actually, Auntie Alicia grates it, so we we, we um pay her some money to, to do it for us. The the greeting she followed us to do it, so we will. My dad would drive over there to my grandma's and carry back all the pineapple, the paste, and he would roll it. He he weighs every single pineapple the log, then the skin also. He has like okay, this thing that I didn't take down was the ratio of pineapple paste to to um pastry that he always nags at me at, but I didn't listen. So he's like, oh, you know, it has to be this this. I'm 
how many grams to this grams and he would really like conscientiously roll each and portion each one out. Oh my gosh, so precise. You know, I was reading one of the interviews that you did recently and you wrote about how um, writing your cookbook was something that you didn't expect or a lot of people didn't expect you to finish and your dad really believed in you throughout the whole process. <laughs> so do you think that your dad is like the primary motivator in you following this path of pursuing your love for cooking and food? Oh, definitely, because he's so supportive and encouraging. Um, I've been very close to him since I was young. So, um, yeah, especially when I first started my my first baking business in SMU, he's been he's the one supporting me all the way. Mm. If I was busy or you know, um, last time I used to sell cupcakes and and I think you know buttercream is is a bitch to wash up. So my dad would actually help me with the cleanup and everything, <laughs> even even after work, and he would help me with the deliveries and he would be so excited whenever um people were praising it online and everything so he was supportive um since all the way back then yeah and yeah this this book because I, I i finished it before i i pitched to a publisher um so just doing a book and i was telling people i was doing a book <laughs> but anyway so everyone was like oh siawa but my dad was the one who was like okay this is really gonna happen yeah. And how has that writing journey been for you? I mean, I know that you took photos for your own book. I feel that, you know, for a cookbook writer, it's a very steep learning curve in Singapore, especially because you not only have to style your your food, but also take photos. So can you tell me about how that, that book writing process was like for you and what was the most challenging part? Oh, okay. Before I begin, I also want to hear about your, your book writing process because it's so interesting. Sure, sure. And um, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's really ch- the photo was the photographs was super challenging because um I am not very good at photography or styling, uh especially the first book I just bought a mirrorless and and took it myself. But it was more of something that I knew I had to do because of the timing. I was also I mean I also have a have a job, so I would do it before I left for the office, and um like when the sun is still around, then you take it. And then the second book I upgraded the lens to a better lens. <laughs> So I was happy about that. And thank God I had a friend who, who whose restaurant closed. So for the second book, he loaned me a lot of cutlery, like all the plates wow. and everything. So I did more things to, to play with for the second book. I wouldn't say I, I enjoy photography. La. <laughs> yeah, it's very leche, right? I, I personally feel that the hardest part is shooting when you still have good light. Yes! You know how it is? Because like throughout the day, right throughout the day the light changes and sometimes like when it's very orangey like when you know like a golden hour I know a lot of like photographers love golden hour but for me I just feel yeah correct it makes the food look very unappetizing because it's too warm yeah so like for me right back then when I was writing wet market to table I had to go to the market early in the morning and then cook like three recipes and by the time I finished cooking right there's such a short window of time to shoot you know and I felt that that was the most challenging part so was photography the most challenging part for you writing this book yeah yeah and then you need a, a photo that pa- uh, passes the mark of the uh, publisher. I read that you had to reshoot your photos after sending in your manuscript. Oh yes, because I got someone to shoot for me um, the first time. And then I like two days, I brought all the dishes for her to shoot. And then they all didn't meet the mark. So I had to reshoot it. And they told me um, they would prefer it, the portrait mode, 
is it portrait? Yeah, portrait, not landscape, and then how it should look. So it's like, oh, okay, damn it, <laughs> I have to reshoot everything. Oh, then it's so troublesome to reshoot everything. I, I, I feel so bad that you had to do that because I know that I would have died if I had to do that. Yeah, but they gave me quite. Um, I think I did it in one to two months. So I cook one dish a day. I can't cook three dishes a day like you. I'll be so tired. <laughs> um, I I cook like one dish and then I go to work and maybe a few dishes a week. I slowly like space yeah. out while I rework the content of the book as well. Mm. So can you tell me more about the second book? I don't know much about it. In terms of concept, how is it different from your first book? Oh, it's completely different. It's more modern and um. Yeah, more modern recipes and it's kind of more South Asian influence, like influence from my travels. So it was, uh, if the let's say the first book was where I picked up cooking and learning, emulating from my grandma. This one, I think I gave myself a bit more um, freedom of expression to kind of try and figure out what my cooking style is. I wouldn't say I figured out completely, but I think um, base, the basic tenets of, of what kind of style of cooking I gravitate to, like kind of family food, nothing fancy, just... Um, a bit messy looking kind <laughs> that is great I love this kind of like unpretentious kind of food um, because sometimes you know food that is very nice right it looks great on a photo but when you eat it it doesn't taste very good lah. so I really love that kind of um, unpretension in your cooking um, so how do, how would you describe the kind of food that you cook on a daily basis I mean would it be uh, drawing inspiration from your travels would it be more like unfussy recipes yeah, it'll be totally like, you cannot, it cannot be too fussy and it has to still taste very good, but the steps cannot be too complicated. Um, mm. I think it will be more like comfort food as well. And let's say, you know, you, you have to, certain steps I won't compromise on, like, you know, browning the meat for the stew, but where I can compromise, if it's okay, I will compromise on it to make my life easier. If not, I wouldn't even want to be in the kitchen. So mm. I guess it's kind of drawing that balance and using whatever's available at home or whatever you can find easily. You know, you don't want to travel all the way to find some other ingredient to use it one time and never use it again. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people our age that have moved out into their own homes, they've just started cooking. Do you have any advice for them as to like how to start? Because there's so much information out there and a lot of my friends tell me that they feel very overwhelmed because there's so much information but they don't know how to start. So what's a good starting point in your opinion? I think you can try to, if you've never cooked before, maybe you can try recipes that are that sneak a lot of shortcuts um, in. Like you don't have to mix stock yourself you can you can like um sneak in like ready-made stock or dashi bags and there's no no crime in buying ready-made stuff online like so many people sell broths and stocks online now or ready-made meatballs all these kind of things i think it's good to have an arsenal of it in your freezer so you can whip something up anytime anytime you want yeah i love that you mentioned dashi bags because i absolutely love them eh. like they are just amazing in terms of flavor, in terms of ease. You don't have to like sieve all the bonito and the and the kombu. You can just like steep it like tea. It's great. So in terms of um, where you normally shop for ingredients, have you like do you normally go to the market or is it mainly from the supermarket or like online grocer? Oh, I actually do go to the wet market. I but I've been waking up really late since COVID. Like 
and then I don't want to walk all the way there. But if I have to, I'll go there. My dad used to buy for me when he would go and get breakfast. So I have certain stalls that I like there, like this meat uncle and everything. So for, for meat, I usually get from wet market or um, certain stores online for, for Japanese meat or beef. And then for vegetables, I do like the mm-hmm. wet market. So it's either wet market or donkey or isetan. The, the um, pork uncle, I've known him since I was... Um, a student in SMU so he always gives me a good rate whereas the vegetables and everything I honestly don't mind paying a bit more or even if I buy a small amount I don't mind paying a bit more because I know I, I buy a minuscule amount just to let them make the money because you know like why not right it's just <laughs> okay like, to me it's just like a bit of money and I do want to see them around and, and, and thriving mm. so what kind of ingredients do you always have in your kitchen garlic Garlic, onions, ginger, dashi bags, kombu, and all the condiments. I actually really like to go to the Chinese dry goods shops, so I always buy stuff there. And I don't use all of them. I actually, I actually just got scolded by my uncle for buying so many dry goods. <laughs> so, um, always dried mushrooms and lap chiong and scallops and hebi. And for all the herbs, yeah, I think I, I buy too much, but there's this uncle near me who... Um, has a TCM shop and he can explain the herbs to me and then somehow I just end up buying it. <laughs> so my friend actually contributed a recipe to my first book for chi- her chicken herbal soup and she has like 10 herbs in it so I had to buy it all. Oh my gosh, that's a lot. No, oh, but it's really, really good and she, yeah, she, so I went to buy and she puts dried mushrooms and scallops also and she cooked it for her husband when he was doing his master's. Oh, wow, that's amazing. I, I think one of my favorite um, recipes that you showcased in your very first book is your chicken essence recipe. Just because I feel that not many people know how to make chicken essence. Like in our minds, right? When you talk about chicken essence, it's like brand's chicken essence and it's always like black and it tastes like not very nice. But like your your version of chicken essence is like really the time-honored way of making it. Like, I mean, for me, my piano teacher once taught me how to what? make it. And um, when I saw it again in your book, I was like, oh, that's so like, you know, so rare that, that someone actually documented all of this into, into her book. Uh, it's actually my friend's mother who, a uh, mother's recipe. Because one day I was talking to my friend and I knew her since SMU days. Yeah, she was like um, the first supporter of my cupcakes back then. Oh, wow. So she, she was, she's very into food. So she shared with me how her mother, because she stays near me, she was like, oh, we go to the Wampo market, you know, you, my mother will order this mother hen and she'll make this chicken essence. So then um, I remembered it throughout all these years. So when I was doing the book, I asked her um, to ask her mother for the steps and recipes and everything for this um, chicken essence and she kind of shared it with me. And yeah, you can really order the mother hen. My dad, my dad and I were just talking about it that one, two months ago because I wanted to make soup with the mother hen. Then he was saying how it could be a bit oily, and everything so I didn't buy oh. that when you were shopping for your cookbook did you go alone or did you normally go with um with your dad or anyone oh um depends on my mood and my schedule if I go to the wet market usually alone because my dad will go earlier so oh but sometimes we go together oh that's so sweet so what's on the horizon for you I mean like now that you have come up with your second book are there plans for a third book or you know how do you intend to 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 share about heritage cooking with more people. Actually, I don't know what whether I would do a, a third book. I'm I haven't had any inspiration yet for it. So I, I think I will be focusing more on 
um, sharing on a video platform, if anything. Yeah. When I think about your content, right, it's really like the Asian Nigella Lawson because you don't, you don't like um, shame people for using uh, shortcuts in the cooking. And yet, like, you know, your food has a lot of integrity, which is what I really like. Oh, really? Nice. Thanks for telling me. And and I'm so happy that you, you think my food has integrity because you're like a, a legit chef. Oh, don't say that. I mean, like, um, when I came across your channel, I just felt that it was very different from the rest of, you know, I mean, other content creators out there who are putting, like, just quick and easy recipes, but maybe it doesn't have any, like, technique to it. Yeah, so I, I thought it was very great and it's very soulful. That's what I like about your food. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really am so happy that we got this chance to to talk and maybe one day you might consider selling your dad's pineapple tarts again and hopefully I'll be back in Singapore to like taste it. <laughs> yeah, thanks for thinking of me and having me on the podcast. That wraps up another episode of the Singapore Noodles podcast. You have been listening to Lace Zhang, who is the author of Around the Dining Table and Three Dishes, One Soup. Singaporean food media suffers from an overemphasis on the best hits, such as chicken rice and laksa, and it fails to capture the full diversity of food enjoyed by Singaporeans. By documenting overlooked recipes, Singapore Noodles strives to provide a fuller representation of our rich food culture. If you would like to support the work that we do, access our recipes, or join in on cook-alongs, you can sign up to be a member at our website, sgpnoodles.com. Once again, thank you for listening to the podcast and I'll catch you next week.